You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is a returning one, award-winning cinematographer, producer, director now, um, Larry Smith. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. Nice to be back. Indeed, indeed. Just to share with the audience the little bit we talked about in the locker room, it's surprised us both to learn it's four years since we spoke. Yeah, amazing. How time flies, as they say. We're going to talk about your movie, your feature-length directorial debut, I believe, yeah? Yeah, that's correct, yeah, uh, for, for movies, yeah. And obviously, yeah. you've DOP'd on many, and you've directed many um, adverts and the like, but Trafficker is your first feature film. Um, and before we go into any detail on that, do you want to give people a brief synopsis to what Traffic is all about? Yeah, well, Trafficker was a, a, a... The story of Trafficker sort of came to me. Uh, I was working with a writer... Uh, on a film that I did some years ago in Malaysia um, um, called Blue Mansion. And um, he uh, he asked me to read this uh, story. Um, it wasn't called Trafficker then. It was called something else. I can't quite remember what it was called now. But And I read it and I, I said, well, first of all, it's a true story, basically, or based on true events. And I love true stories anyway. And um, And I read it and I was just knocked out by it and and the background to that was he was a political journalist and um he he had um written this story about these um two brothers that had come from <clears throat> vietnam um uh, with their mother and father um and got hijacked by pirates and, and and the synopsis to this is that that's exactly what happened it was basically in the mid 80s early 80s that this family came from the, the north of vietnam um up around like hawaii up around there um and after the vietnam war of course there was you know huge uh, amounts of poverty um, as, as, there, as there always were in those, that, those parts of Asia at that time. But this was kind of, you know, it was the aftermath of that. And they decided to um, take their family, two young boys, uh, like a five and seven, I think they were, um, and, and go for a new life. Not to Australia, interestingly enough. 
they were going to Malaysia, um, um, and um, <clears throat> but they had to go by boat. So that, uh, and basically, when they get on this boat, this boat gets attacked by pirates and um, and takes what little. Well, there would have been money on the boat because obviously uh, the amount of people on the boat had to pay for the journey. And basically, they're, um, what they used to do, uh, or what some pirates did anyway, they would kill all the men because the men had no value to them whatsoever apart from maybe a security problem. And they would um, take the women um, and put the women into camps and for prostitution or whatever slavery and uh, the kids they didn't really care about and um, basically that's what kind of happened here they they took these people off the boat and the boat was floating around in the uh, in the in the ocean and it was picked up by a um, by an, uh, an australian um, um uh, merchant boat and then these kids were taken to um, australia where they were brought up in an orphanage catholic orphanage bullied etc etc and the older one was protecting the younger one it's um and it was it's a story that the real story here uh, it, 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 which is really what, what kind of i, I tapped into was the, the fact that um it, it was a thing about brotherly love you know because the, it, it, as, as far as these two boys were uh, well, the older one in particular understood was that they had no family, and they and in fact they didn't. So the older one had sort of made the decision at seven he had to protect the younger one, which he kind of did all the way through school. And then they get into um, uh, the older one gets into a, a drug related Vietnamese gang in Australia because now they're kind of really Australian kids. Really, um, they've been brought up there, and um, and the younger brother becomes a chef. And it's really what happens. At that period, you know, um, where the younger brother, who's always been the weaker link, ends up becoming the stronger one um, because the, the older brother gets in so much trouble that the younger brother has to try to help him out. And it's a story about that that whole thing uh, about brotherly love and family protection. And it's also a story about, which is quite present day really well, it's never really gone away when you think about it you know piracy and slavery and um, you know um, and, and the way people are treated and the way we as as human beings still in the 20th century 21st century um deal with our fellow man and women um you know because this is a story that you could have said happened 500 years ago because the same things were going on and i think that's a real thing that tapped into me still after all these years and how we supposedly have evolved uh, and i'm not sure that's true in many ways um you know how we still allow these kind of things to go on yeah i must admit because when when you see the this the 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 writing come up on screen to tell you it's it's um north vietnam and it's 1987 and then we're on the high seas and it's it it is a it is a motif that is time immemorial is that largely innocent people are fleeing problems that are not of their creation correct fueled by fear and probably the half glass full the the, the clinging to a half glass full of hope that somehow yeah. there's a better future for them yeah and if you think about it if you think about you know if you go sort of go back to the beginning of this story so you have a young husband and wife, probably early 20s, and two young children, and they take their family, um, and they had nothing, of course, whatever money they had, you know, was spent to, 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 the tra- to give to the traffickers, and they're going to another country, 
the only language they have is, is Vietnamese. Malaysia obviously speaks a different language or wherever else they would go. And to do that with two young children, you can imagine, you know, what, what is the driving force behind that? You know, that they want to give a, a, a better life. And then, you know, they thought they, thought they had it bad living in Vietnam. And that was just the beginning of their problems. The problems just escalated. You know, the closer they got to this boat and once they were on the boat and then with the two boys later on in their life and then what happens to them, it's like, you know, they, they never had a break. You know, they never, and, and some people in life, well, many, many people in life, of course, from different parts of the world, never get a break. Yeah, yeah. Ever. I mean, there is that, you know, the whole kind of Calvinistic work ethic of, you know, you what you put in, you get out. Well, these these people you're depicting, they're trying very hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> taking lots of chances mm-hmm. to, uh, to improve their station. Mm-hmm. And all they come up against is more people who are going to exploit them further. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. And the, the other interesting thing is, to me, is as well, when you really drill down on these kind of uh, things, is that normally the the, 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 the people that are, find it most difficult, the biggest problems they get are normally from their own people. You know, that's what, in, in, in they pram, you, you know, you see it in this, even in this country, where, you know, when you get people, you know, forced um, uh, to come um, as, as worker slaves from East, even from some of the Eastern European countries. And they're obviously brought here, and, you know, illegally in, in a lot of cases, although, you know, that's probably not true with some of, you know, a lot of the uh, European countries. Um and they're treated so badly. You see the documentaries when they're where they live and they take their money and they, you know, they give them a credit card or they get a credit card based on their money. So, and you think, well, hang on, these are people from their own country who must know how difficult life is. You know what? Doesn't matter. Doesn't but, matter. but you can you can boil it down to you know any 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 poverty stricken area of Britain where a loan shark lends money to someone that needs money. And then makes their life hell because they can't pay the money, and that's that's British people. That's British people growing up next to British people. Yeah, that's- well, that's what I'm saying. It, it, it really that was a, like a, a general statement. It, it's no different, you know. Um, and it's you know it, it it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter if it's supposedly the richest country in the world or the poorest country in the world, you know, or the country with the biggest population or the smallest population. Unfortunately. We, you know, here we are in the 21st century, and we still don't have empathy for our fellow, our fellow man. And you're also credited here as the screenplay writer. So, yeah, I did the screen. That's correct. Yeah. So, tell me about your experience. I'm a writer, so down, and I certainly couldn't set a camera lighting up for for love and money. So, tell me about your experiences <laughs> of writing a screenplay. How did you find that process? Basically, what happened um, was that the writer Ken Quek had written the story, and and Ken is a, a, a very talented writer. He's Singaporean, educated here in the UK as as at Cambridge actually, as most of the wealthy Singapore people um, are, and um, so he knows, you know, obviously he knows if if you like. Chinese way of life, but he also knows European way of life, British yeah. way of life, particularly. So when he writes, he writes kind of like, if you like, from an English. Well, Singapore's point of view. mother tongue is English, isn't it? 
If, if, yeah, if it's mother song, tongue. Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's official language, sorry, not mother tongue. Yeah, it's exactly that. And yeah. um, if we get time at the end, I'll tell you a funny story that links into the film I did with him called uh, The Blue Mansion at Cannes, but if, only if we have time. Anyway, so um, he, he'd shown me this story, as I said, and then I, I, I went to Australia. I went to Melbourne, uh, the producer's um, ec- um, um, exhibition type thing about um, – a year before I made um, uh, Trafficker to try to get some money with, um, because originally it was going to be produced by Nicholas Wine in Refn and um, Lena Borgman, who's his producer. Um, and we went, and Lena and I went to Melbourne and we met people there and we were going to get the money to shoot this film in Australia because ostensibly it's an Australian story. It, you know, it begins in Vietnam, but really the bulk of the story um is about these kids and how they're growing up in Australia and then what happens to them at the end. So uh, we got really good interest from them. And we sort of, it looked like we were going to get X amount of money to do it, which was more money than we actually got to shoot it uh, in Thailand, which is where I did shoot all of this. Um, And, um, but I knew with the extra money, or I felt, I should say, with the extra money that I would have got from shooting in Australia, it, it, it was a slight false economy because things are so much more expensive to shoot in Australia. Um, you know, um, um, unions are, you know, uh, have to be fooled about and all of these things. And I just felt, I just felt that I might not be able to make the film I w- wanted to make with ultimately with the money I had if I shot it in Australia. So I looked at other options and then I, 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 I was living in France at the time mm. and um, some really good friends of mine who are, are in finance work in the city uh, living, that live in France. These are um, not, not, not uh, Brits, but you know, sort of French and one Danish guy and uh, one American guy. I, I, I'd been speaking to about projects and about how they might be able to raise some money to, for a film fund. And the long and the short of it is we raised, I raised the money privately through them mm. and then decided, okay, we'll shoot it in, and, and we'll shoot it in um, Thailand and I'll, you know, I'll have probably have enough money. And, and, and that was kind of the first hurdle that um, uh, that I came across, we didn't quite get the amount of money that was promised. We were about 125 grand short, which when you're making a low-budget film, is quite a lot of money. No, it must be. be it short. must be. And, and to be honest, it would have been the difference of shooting probably another week, at least a few days in that week, which I could have done with because some of the problems we had with things not working, some, some, some special effects things that didn't work on, particularly on the, one of the night scenes on the boat, on the shootout on the boat, I would have done again and I would have added a couple of extra um, um, scenes because, you know, it, 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 it's a succinct film in the, in, in the sense that we used every minute of every day um, and, um, you know, we used every frame of, uh, that we shot more or less, you know. So there was no, um, there, there, there was there was no slack there whatsoever. And as you know, as people may be listening to this, and you, you know, uh, there's that great saying I use it, um, and by that I mean it's better to have a, a bit of extra stuff, even if it ends up on the on, on the editor's floor, than not having a scene or not having. You know the, the the bulk of that scene, the way you would like to edit it. So, so from that point of view, 
you know, from sort of, sort of from the early stages, it was difficult um, um, to do. Um, but you know, anyway, we 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 um, we soldiered on with that, and um, you know, ultimately, we are clearly we got through it. You know. Now, I remember you telling me that only God forgives is one of the hardest shoots you'd ever done. Correct. Which yeah. speaks volumes for how many shoots you must have been on in your life. So what drew you back to Thailand to shoot a movie? Well, um, again, because we'd shot Only God Forgives there, and, um, uh, you know, um, it, there, there's two aspects to this. There's, number one, as you know, my background was working with probably one of the cleverest men ever to work in movies who was a producer-director, as in Stanley Kubrick. And even though... Even though the the size of the productions that he did, filmmaking is is all relative. Whether you've got a big budget or whether you've got a small budget, you know, and it's the same old problems. It's it's all about problem solving, you know. You know, to, to get a production made, uh, you know, it, the way you would like it to be made. I mean, you don't always achieve that, of course, but I mean that's a. That's the theory. And what I saw on Only God Forgives, and, you know, we had a quite a long time, not a long time to shoot it, but we had, you know, and we were shooting for about eight or nine weeks. And uh, and I just saw things there. And I was thinking, I, I, you know, some of the locations um, that we went to that were, you know, in, in Bangkok, but like took hours to get to. And, and then, then you get there and you think, well, hang on, they're not actually the best locations I've ever seen in my life. So why would you travel? And then an army of minibuses and then, you know, and, and, and just different aspects. And I thought, well, you know, um, if I shot in Thailand, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it this way. I would be smarter. I would try to do it in, in a smarter way, not knowing at that stage, uh, of course, that I was going to shoot in, 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 um, in Thailand. Um, and then other things. You learn about shooting in Thailand. You know, Thailand is considered to be a cost-effective place to shoot. Well, it is and it isn't. It depends how you do it, you know, because, number one, they have no rebate scheme there. You do not even get the VAT back there on any money you shoot there. So what's cost-effective about shooting in Thailand? Well, it was supposed to be the cost of labour, the cost of accommodation, cost of this, the cost of that, and, 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 and clearly a lot of that is true. They've also got some very good crews down there, got great camera crews, great great lighting crews, great grips, not a great art department, and and I, and, and there are elements of, cor- of corruption down there in uh, in terms of um, uh, locations, because when you don't speak the language, you, you're not negotiating about uh, locations. Somebody else is. So, you know, um, uh, so things like that, which I kind of knew was going on, but very, very difficult to actually, you know, get in there, drill down and get get to it. But that ha- that's, that's Southeast Asia, you know. Um, catering, the cost of catering there, considering, you know, when you think how basic the food is, um, was extremely expensive, and I found that on Only God Forgive. So I did that a little bit differently on, on Trafficker. And things like that. So I thought, well, I, I, you know, I, I'll just try to apply the two, the, 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 the two sides of that coin when I, when I make Trafficker and, and try to keep, uh, uh, you know, as put as much money as we could on the screen and not have, you know, X amount of drivers and X amount of minibuses and keep the locations. So we went to a location, we might shoot three or four different locations over a two or three day period in the same area, which I, which I did manage to do, which is why really I was able to shoot this film in Thailand. Cause you can find, 
like the streets of Melbourne in Bangkok or the streets of Sydney in a limited way for that period. You know, you can find Vietnam easy on the river. So you physically have never been to Australia as part of the production of this film? No. No, it was all shot in Thailand. (laughs) And again, that comes from, 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 a lot of that comes from Kubrick because, you know, you know, he showed me what is possible not, 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 he didn't sit down and say, look, if you do this, this is going to go. But he showed me the way he did things that you store in your memory that basically, you know, uh, given the fact that, you know, if anyone has ever been to Thailand, they know about all the Buddhist temples and about all the architecture. It's very, very Thai. But there are areas of Thailand that could be uh, not Europe, but certainly could be, say, Australia um, or even uh, arguably America. So you can find little streets and things, which is what we did. And then really, then it's all about camera angles, what you don't see. I was going to say, so tell me, tell me what, what are, what are some of the things that you have picked up from working with Kubrick that you were able to apply to shooting a movie that's, that's all being, it's all in Thailand and is meant to make us believe we've been to Saigon, we've been to Melbourne, we've been to Singapore airport and so on and so forth. What tricks, what, what sort of things were you were you um, using? That you, that okay, well, the Singapore airport one I'll deal with first because it was a really easy one to deal with because in the middle of Bangkok, um, uh, they had a, um, a, a brand new station that they'd built. Uh, it's called Airport, I think it's called Airport Link, I can't remember. And what it was was that you check in, you go to the middle of time, check in all your bags and everything, and then that goes to the airport. When you go to the airport, you get on the plane. Um but it was expensive for lots of airlines uh, to use. They had priced it badly, as the Thais do. They think, oh, everyone just comes and, yeah, it's Thailand. They want to come and spend it. But it was too expensive. And I think only Thai Airways was the only company that used it. But this uh, station was a, it was a massive, you see it in the film, it was a massive, looked like an airport concourse. When yes, it you does. Sit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, th- th- that particular scene where where, where um, Al gets off of the, um, uh, comes in and meets um, Amanda Donahue at the airport, um, uh, and that is shot in the middle of Bangkok. But that is a was a wonderful look. It was a really easy one to find. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, I can shoot this. There was no one around. It was empty. Nobody was using it, you know. So we had carte blanche to do what we want then and we were only there for a morning anyway you know um and then we we used for for another airport scene we used a a sort of disused terminal at a different airport um the other side of um um, bangkok i can't quite remember it's an older airport anyway so that those two elements uh uh, were easy then you know then it was okay how do we how are we going to find australia how we uh, you know where are going to be the streets for australia well as i said you know you drive around and i did you know i got the location scout to give me some photographs and Basically, what, what happened, when it happens a lot, it used to happen a lot when I would um, shoot commercials, you know, you'll be in South Africa or somewhere. Quite often, a lot of location scouts, they work out of a book, you know, a, a playbook, and they don't, this is, you know, it, it, it's their comfort zone. And you don't always get to see the locations that you might otherwise find unless you do it yourself, mm. uh, which is what I did. And so I would drive around until I saw a street, 
or an angle in a street and you know in, in the hairdresser saloon isn't one example of that you know where if you look too far down the street you can start to see stuff that you know would be expensive to remove or you know that clearly see you weren't in Australia so it's about angles um, um, really you know so it's where you where you point the camera and how you you know it's what you don't see it's what you so that's just, that, you that's a key that's a key thing that you you picked up from what from working with Kubrick is is that that element of as long as you don't see it then it can it it can be what it can be what we want it to be can't it yeah yeah I mean Stanley never had that problem of of, of solving that but I get an example on Eyes Wide Shut we did a lot of stuff with Tom walking on the streets of New York well we had the streets of New York because we built the streets of New York on the back lot so a lot of that was real then some of it we shot in Great Marlborough Street. In, in, in the West End of London. So, you know, because it looks like New York, you know, and if you know New York, you can you just look at it, you wouldn't know you weren't in New York. And then other things we shot against, we had some back projection, you know, so we, we, we used a mixture of things. So to go to Great Marlborough Street and you think, well, okay, this is New York. Why would we not have, why would you not shoot here, you know? Um, well, uh, well, you out know, of interest, from a technical point of view, what is it about the ways that, I guess, the way you combine the angle you're shooting at of a place that isn't really it, but you're trying to kid as it is, coupled with the way it's edited together, what what are the what are the tricks that we're playing here on on people? What um, clearly you don't want to see cars because some cars you, we, obviously we moved as many as we could, but there's always going to be some cars that you just don't have under your control, and they're going to have you know British number plates on. So clearly you can't do that. They're going to be right hand drive, you know. Street signs, you know, um, and and as long as you can find a way of getting, and, and you've got to remember, Eyes Wide Shut, we don't have, didn't have the post production tools that we have today uh, in terms of painting out. Um, um, but you know, so but then why see things that you know are going to give you give you a problem in the edit, and also might be have a cost, will have a cost to get rid of, you know, in your VFX budget you know, which are always astronomical these days. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, it, 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 you know, it's like if you, you, you know, you might take a low angle and look up hmm. as opposed to taking a high angle and look down, you know, um, uh, or where you crop the head height if you're seeing a sign in a window that you can't physically get to. So it's all, it's it's what I said earlier on. It's just problem solving. But then, but, but in, in Trafficker, you... There's there's a there's a shot where we where we introduce in a kind of macro sense Saigon, which is a big junction. Now there's that that's not that's quite a wide shot as far as I can understand. But I was but I was kidded along. I didn't. Well, that junction shot, in fact, is Vietnam. That was that was the stock footage. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, that is Saigon. But the rest of it, <coughs> and obviously in the car. In the taxi and in the and in the CD nightclub was obviously all Bangkok. And again, you wouldn't you wouldn't really know the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the establish yeah. so the establishing shot was all is is doing its job there, isn't it? Because it's doing a lot of the heavy lifting, and then Correct. and then we're into Correct. your filming. Yeah, and the same was true with the, the opening scene of the movie where you see the top shot when it, where you come down and you see a motorbike going through the streets before you get into the coverage on the motorbike when they're driving through again that was that was stock footage talk us through i mean there's, there's a there's a there's a shootout at sea so so what what are the 
what are the key challenges there for uh, for a, um, from the way you're describing things? You're sort of you're working with as tight a crew as you can pull together to make to get more pounds on screen. So what what for you were when because when you get out of water, that's obviously even if it's near a harbour and you're tricking us, it's still on water, isn't it? Well, we we were just in a in a in a sort of like um we were like it, it was like a river that came off of the sea, and it was. You know, we obviously that did take a bit that we did have to put a bit of post production in that because we were never out at sea in in in, in that we were in a river and beyond beyond uh, that there were all houses with lights on and things and um, I had very little time to shoot that I had, I had a night to shoot that wow. which was nowhere near enough and then we had terrible problems with the, with the special effects the squibs weren't going on they took forever to rig it so I ended up shooting that scene in about two hours. You know, which was um, very frustrating to me. And that's a scene I would have loved to have gone back and added, and, you know, and reshot, and, and I would have done it um, differently. In fact, both elements of the of the boat, once they're on the boat and the shootout, and then from the uh, hut where they're kept to them actually getting on the boat, I just – I needed another minimum of one night, probably two, to have covered it the way I wanted it and to have got the performance out of sort of non-actors – if you like, that I would have liked to have got. But, you know, that's, you know, that's quite often with filmmaking and editing. So much of it is hindsight, what you would have liked to have done. But, you know, <laughs> um, but I, there are elements of that. Another week would have been wonderful. Three days would have been, it would have been really nice as well. Um, but, you know, that's, a, that's the challenges that we face. You got to... Um... Like with uh, like like was a very big motif in um, in Only God Forgives. For this, you got to play with um, neon lighting in uh, both externally and and in a lot of the sort of club interiors. Again, if you, you and I know that like um, um, they were supposed to be in Australia in the in the club and in the snooker hall and that, but basically, um, from what I've seen anyway, my experience and other people might have seen this differently. Those uh, Asian-run clubs, um, I, you know, I, I, I've never been to one in Australia, so I don't know. But I just assumed. I just put it. Well, this is Asian life, and this is, you know, this is what makes Asian people feel more at home if they're in a nightclub scenario. So I took that. That's basically how it is in um, in Bangkok. So I, I assumed, well, why wouldn't it be the same in Vietnam or, you know, and then the Vietnam, Vietnamese people in, 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 in Australia? That's number one. And number two, it's I, I kind of like that feel, you know. Um, I just thought it worked really well in Only God Forgives. You don't have to put tons of lights up. You know, you can use sort of – you just create an ambient source in there and with a little bit of supplementary if you need it. And were you? I remember from when we spoke last time. You talked to we talked a little bit about digital versus film. Was 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 your main capture for this film still? No, it was all done on digital. Um, yeah, um, and the reason is interesting enough. It's very sim. Uh, it, it, it's kind of like the if you remember. I think we talked about only God forgives why I chose video. Uh, I chose digital. I the director really wanted to shoot digital, but the reason. I chose digital, I went with digital on Only God Forgives, and I think that's the first film I'd shot digitally, was because I'd made that decision to say we need to shoot this at night because you can't shoot 
Thailand during the day. I mean, it's it's awful. It's a boring. Bangkok is boring during the day, but it comes to life at night, and you get all of those colours. Um, and I and I always say about digital versus film. And you may remember we talked about this before, and I talk about it quite often. If you choose a format to shoot on, if if you're able to choose a format to shoot on, because obviously a lot of cinematographers are not able to do that. Um, you, you, you have to choose a format that fits the film or is not detrimental to the film and shoot in digital at night in places like Thailand or, or most other places actually is not detrimental to the images that you can that you can produce because digital works really well at night. It's just hot days on bright windows and things like that where digital is so much more challenging. It's interesting that as a contrast, isn't it? The idea that that film works better with real light <laughs> and, and mm. digital has has the upper hand, I suppose. It's not better, but it has the upper hand when there's less light because it doesn't need as much to, Correct. to, get, Correct. to get the image, does it? Correct. It's just a highlight. If you think about how film worked, in, in, when we when, when we used more film, we were always protect, protecting the shadow areas because if it wasn't there, if you if you didn't get any detail in the shadows, that's it. It's, you, you know, there's nothing there. With digital, it's there's all much uh, there's there's too always too much light in the in the highlights so what that we re- reverse the process we're now protecting the highlights and um and if there are any young cinematographers um that might listen to this is that always think about that always think about how you're going to deal because you don't want to keep seeing burnt out windows you want to time to see outside the windows and so it's how you go about controlling that light outside and that doesn't mean you have to always build up the light inside which is what normally happens because that's time consuming and it never looks real it always looks like you've built up the light inside so you've got to get that balance you know and that's um that's part of the art of what we do really and you were uh, you reacquainted yourself with uh with god from only god forgive well i used a couple of the actors from only god forgive actually the mother um of the two young boys was the girl if you recall that was um the um like the housemaid who used to look after um 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 his kids um so i'm struggling to remember his name i know him so well um the, the actor in only god forgives them um, anyway uh, it, that was her so i brought her back because i always felt she looked vietnamese now when she did only god forgives she was a, a three or four years younger and she was a little slimmer she just put on a little bit of weight, uh, but I still felt that she looked Vietnamese, and I knew her, and she spoke really good English. So I used her, and I used a couple of the other police characters as well, um, like um, the father, uh, Charlie. Um, he was in Only God Forgives. He played a role in that. Um, I think he was a policeman in that. So, so I used a few of those characters. Again, because I knew them, because I knew they could give a performance, and their English was really good as well, so they didn't need a lot of. We gave them a note; they understood it, you know. And on this film, you're you're also the cinematographer, correct? Yeah. What 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 was your was you not was there no temptation at all to give up that responsibility for somebody else? No, and I will tell you why. Basically, the way I have always worked since I become a cinematographer is, um, um, I try to do things in a way that look as natural as possible. And quite often, that can be a really sim- sim- uh, simple way to work. You, you know, you're not 
you know, you, you've not got a truckload of lights out there that you need to get off. Quite often you, you need, and particularly with digital, you need less light. You don't need more light. So knowing a, 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 as much as I do about cinematographers, cinematographers, especially young cinematographers, they love to get lights out. You know, because and, and it's very understandable. They, they, you know, they're, they're learning on the job. They want to get. They want to try this. They want to try that. I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford that on, on traffic. So what I did was I worked in a way <clears throat> that everything was kind of pre-lit. So when we walked into it, I had the maximum shooting time, and I didn't have to keep having discussions with a cinematographer about move that light, turn that off, put that on. You, you know what I mean? Which is very, very time consuming. But then you've all, then you've got everything, you've got everything about directing on your shoulders too. So how, how does that help you manage the time better? Well, it man- makes me manage the time better in two ways. Number one, uh, there's no downtime for lighting because I've already done it. I've already seen all of the locations. I'm not getting frustrated about how something looks. You know, so that, in fact, gave me more time, not less time, to concentrate on. And when I'm looking at something through, through the lens, because I did operate one of the cameras as well, <laughs> just, to, just to give, me, give myself something extra to do. Um, and, you know, I'm, that was always my mode of working. I always lit through the lens of the camera, in, 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 you know, through, uh, through glass, i.e. I, through film. A little more difficult to do that through a digital viewfinder, but um, so but you know I rely on my eye, and if it looked and if it looked good to my eye, I, I was happy with it. I was going to say so. So in years of experience, enabled you to sort of have fleet of foot for the cinematographer side of it, and then free up time to be the director of the film. Correct, and without the frustrations of having to deal with a cinematographer that was taking too long to do something, and which is a great sense of frustration for anybody, you know. So I, I removed that element, and I, believe me, there were discussions about this. People said, "Are you sure you want to do this?" And I said, "Yeah, and that's, I'm absolutely sure." And the reason is because of this, and and I know that's given me a lot more freedom to do what I want. So, so generally speaking, that worked, I'd say, really well. Yeah. So in that sense, what would what would you remember being the most difficult sort of sequence or scenes to for you to pre-light and get ready to shoot in? Well, I didn't have a problem with any of the pre-lighting. I told I had really good um, gaffers out there, and uh, uh, it were really on it. You know, really on it. I just say, do this, do this, do that. Most of it, is, if you look at it, <clears throat> most of it's practical. If you look, they'd, they'd, I, I'm just trying to remember where I used big lights there um and i obviously did i, I might have used an 18k somewhere uh, i'm just trying to think where that would have been but generally speaking it was all done with it was all done with um, practicals yeah, Most yeah, of those- yeah i was gonna say because the, the 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 sort of nighttime more urbany shots mm. they have that feel of like you know like michael mann's collateral say for example where you're, correct you're out running you, you know you're running around a city yeah 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 correct yeah um you, you know, I, I just think that um, you don't, depending on, you know, if I'm working uh, with another director, the director might say, well, I'd really like to see this looking like that. And then I'll have a debate. I say, well, you don't need, we don't need to keep putting big lights up and, you know, having the moon out on every shot. And that was the approach I kind of took on, you know, um, on, on traffic. And also the speed we were moving, you've got you, you to remember that the speed, the amount of locations we covered and, uh, and shots we got through in a day, we just never had that time. So in a way, you could say Trafficker is, is semi-documentary in, in, in the way it was shot, you know, and, and, and in the way the lighting worked. 
So you you were really sort of shooting it literally like a gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, shooting from the hip a lot. But it wasn't quite like that. It was a bit. It was a bit more nuanced than that. But you know, I knew that. <clears throat> I knew that. Um, and also, having shot only God forgives, and you know, and I, and understood how it all worked. And I've, I've done stuff like this before anyway. Um, I, it was just. It just all felt right. I, I suppose. What out of interest though, with with all your with with your with the lion's share of experience on feature films, obviously coming from cinematography and working with the with the art department on lights and stuff, how how empowering did it feel to be the director of the film at this at this stage now? Well, obviously one of the big frustrations that cinematographers get, especially cinematographers that work with lots of different directors like I have, or or even first time directors, is that you know, the directors don't always sort of um, um, get it. They don't always, you know, shoot, um, shoot the scene in the way the cinematographer would like the scene to be shot. And that's their right, because at the end of the day, they are the directors, it's their film. But you get, you do get frustrated about, you know, some of the things and some of the coverage uh, or some of the over-coverage, which directors tend to do. Um um, uh, and so when you do, when you are in a position, you, you, you know, you, I, I had a very clear mindset of not only am I not going to overcover it, cover this, I don't have the time to overcover it. So if you, if you see, you're, you're seeing traffic, which I don't like anyway, you won't see any big close ups. You won't see any of that right in there under the, under the lip, bottom lip, chopping through the, the forehead, which I hate anyway. You know, I don't, I don't get that personally. I never have. But so you'll find most of my close-ups, people probably would call a medium shot. Okay. You know, um, and I think the reason, again, that's twofold. And this also comes a little bit from Kubrick because, you know, normally the longest lens Stanley would ever probably use would be a 50 mil, you know, whereas directors want to get, you know, a, a, you know a 180, 200 mil lens and get right in, right in close. So, and, and, he, and his go-to lens, his average lens, was normally an 18 or a 16 mil lens. So he shot, a lot of his stuff was always quite in close, but with wide angle lenses. He never really shot anamorphic, where I do like to shoot anamorphic. So I, I, I kind of... I, I, I tend to go in closer on wider lenses. What that gives you is you see the location, you see the set, you see all the other work that people have put in because that's really what the production value is. You know, it's not, yes, it's about the acting. Of course it is. It's about, you know, the interpretation of how the actors are dealing with the script and how the director, but why shouldn't you see that in, you know, in, in, in a really nice setting, it, you know, if the setting calls for that, or even if it's a, a dingy setting like the when he comes and picks the drugs up with the French guy, you know that was a location I found it was a broken down old cinema. That, you know they walk up that old broken escalator. That's how it was. You know I just added a couple of bits and pieces in there. I thought it was one of the best locations we shot on, and it was so real, you know. And um, and and imagine, you know, bringing him up the stairs with a steady cam. You know, on a sort of hundred mil lens, let's just say, or you know, or seventy five mil lens, all you're all you're seeing is a close up, a wobbly close up at that, and you're not seeing any of the set. Got so you. you know, I like to me that's real part of filmmaking that's that you don't see so much these days. If you go back to you know the classic films, 
of the 50s and 60s, you know, you'll see more often than not much, uh, you, you won't see so many close-ups, you'll see a lot more wider angle shots to tell the story in. So, so I mean, given, obviously, um, Kubik's reputation for um, for taking his time when making films, mm. uh, and, and you've already described how taking your time wasn't a luxury you had on this film, mm. who would you say was... Um, was a key sort of influence as a director on you making this movie? I don't think I had an influence, to be honest. Um, and and I get asked this a lot about films. I'll give you an example, and only God forgives to use one. I was interviewed, I can't remember who it was by now, and um, the questions went something like this. So, um, so what was your inspiration for how you lit uh, Only God Forgives? Uh, did you see, was it influenced by and he, he referenced a Russian um, uh, director, um, I, I, and I don't, of which I can't remember the name of the film, and I didn't know the director, and I hadn't seen the film. I said, no, uh, I don't even know who that is. And then he said, oh, in that case, was it so-and-so, so-and-so? I said, no. <laughs> then I, and every, every question he asked me was no, because I didn't, you know, I didn't know the things he was referencing anyway. I didn't know the films. They were obscure films, you know. <clears throat> and he said, so where do you get the influence? What, you know, what, what do you get it? I said, I, it comes. I said, I, you know, I get influenced by the location that I'm on. I get influenced by, you know, like, like Bangkok, I said, it, you get influenced by Bangkok at night because when you go around Bangkok at night, it's a mixture of all different kinds of lights, all different kinds of colours, some bright, some dark, some some cosmetic, some ugly, you know. And and it's that mixture, that mismatch, that kind of documentary feel, if you like, that was the reason uh, that uh, Only God Forgives uh, ended up the way it ended up. And I, as someone who's, who's worked as long as you have in this game, do you ever go anywhere without think without seeing it like a film set and how potential it is for this light and that light when you when you go to a new city, like as if you're mm. on holiday, not working or something? Do you do you mm. do you see it like a cinematographer? Or are you able to switch that off? No, I do see it like a cinematographer. <laughs> interestingly enough, um, and it's not, you know, because anything to the eye, and whether you're a cinematographer or whether you're, you know, somebody that you know delivers things for Amazon, I think. To the naked eye, beauty is beauty in whatever way you see it. So if you go to a really beautiful location, you've got, you know, beautiful sandy beaches, let's just say, and blue, like azure sea and beautiful skies and birds. It's beautiful. You know, you look and you think, wow, what a wonderful spot, which is why we tend to go on holidays to certain places. You know, we see it in a brochure or we've somebody's recommended it, we've seen their photographs. The same is true if I go to a restaurant somewhere and and this is a wonderful thing about cinematography and the kind of locations that you have to shoot in this day for example you might be shooting in a restaurant in a city you know somewhere let's say it's for, for argument's sake budapest in a modern sort of you know not even a modern restaurant but a, a, a restaurant that's been very beautifully designed and art directed by you know whoever the architects were and invariably modern lighting today um you know with the with, with with the way you can hide lights etc etc because i don't really like to see lights i just like to see that get the feel of light um but you can go in i go into some restaurants and think well if i this was a location i wouldn't do a thing in here we just, I'd get the camera and say, right, I'm ready. 
And I do that a lot. And quite often I sort of look and I'll take a photograph of something just to see how it looked from my iPhone, you know, because invariably it looks the same to my eye. You know, it might be a bit brighter on the iPhone. You could cross it down. So, so yes, the answer to your question is yes, I do go to lots of places. And when I see something that's visually interesting, I, 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 I store that, you know, I like that. I think, you know, this is that, whoever designed this has designed this really well. Where do you think that confidence comes from, though, to, to trust the natural light of a place, you know, compared to an instinct to want to control the light for what you're going to shoot? Trust the... Well, like my eye is just what my eye tells me. Okay. You know, normally if it's... It, it, I remember seeing, seeing many years ago, I was uh, seeing... Um, um, uh, something that Eric Clapton was um, composing a tune on. Remember the old tape decks? Yeah, we had, and and he was he was he was playing a few chords. This is many many years ago. After he sort of you know, got off the drugs and he was sort of back in the game, so to speak. Mm. And he would play a few chords and then we'd play it back on this tape recorder. And it, the quality was awful. I can't tell you. And. And, uh, and whoever was interviewing, and he said, well, they said, how do you get a, a, a sense of that? He said, well, I know to my ear, if I'm enjoying what I'm hearing on that tape deck, it's going to be, it's going to be great. And I think that's pretty much true uh, without using the word great. Um, I think it's pretty much true to like, I know if I bring a camera in and put it down in a certain scenario. And an example of that in Trafficker is, is, is that when Amanda Donahue comes, she's seen the minister. In, uh, to ask about clemency, uh, 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 and she walks through that big sort of uh, marbled floor. Um, um, it was, a, it was. I forget. I can't remember what the building was, but it was beautiful. It had loads of tables and chairs in it. So I got rid of all of those and used that as a wall. And she comes in and she sits down, opens the computer. That's all natural lighting. Wow! Really? There's nothing, nothing in there at all. That is exactly how it was. I suppose, yes, yeah, was in the way that I guess modern lighting doesn't throw like old fashioned halogen lighting used to do, does it? And things yeah, like no, exactly. And as I say, with digital, it's it's all there. I mean, with digital, when you look at something from your eye, yeah, if you think, oh, this, this is a bit dark, I might have to add this, you won't have to add it because your eye is probably, you know, a stop and a half, maybe even two stops. Uh, darker than what digital would see it with modern digital yeah, cameras. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just knowing these things, you know. And again, you know, with digital, the one big plus about digital, I think, is is that when you do go into a place, you put a camera and you've got your monitors that you, that, that cinematographers, cinematographers light through these days mm. with their DIT, right? You can see on the, you can see on the monitors. You can see if it's too bright or too dark. Anyway, so it's not a gamble. There's no gamble there at all. Got you. Now, when we spoke in 2016, you'd already shot Trafficker. I think you were, mm. I think you were finishing off post and looking for release yeah. date. Um, and it finally made it out for people to see, was it May 2019? Yeah, somewhere around there, yeah. I think it, I think it got on the platforms. I think it got on Amazon somewhere. I can't exactly remember the so date. So we've got a digital release circuit. Yeah. So what, what's what been the journey? Because I, I think, I remember, again, if I remember rightly, you weren't sure what the release date was. You were still waiting on that to be finalised. So what took, what's been the journey and what took so long for well, Trafficker to, for, for, to be able to see by people? 
Okay, so basically what happened, I mentioned earlier on that uh, Nicholas Wine and Reffin and um, uh, Lena Borgman were going to produce this. And um, and then basically what happened, they, there was, they, got, in, they, they got into some problems um, with Only God Forgives and how they were going to get that released. Um, you know, obviously when it ended, ended up getting into Cannes anyway because – I think of their relationship probably with Gourmand and Wild Bunch. And uh, Nicholas, is very, Nicholas is very big in France anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, and, and so they kind of pulled out at the very last minute uh, uh, in terms of being producers. Uh, and, um, and that left me with a dilemma because I had basically had the money to shoot the film. Um, and um, uh, without the help of them, I'd got it privately, as I said earlier on, and and it was well, you know, we're so far down the road now. What do we do? Do we carry on, or do I have to sort of look for for another producer? And the the, the service company that I used in in Thailand, I knew the guy that ran it. I'd I'd done films here with with, with him. He was basically a line producer. And I thought, well, maybe you know, between us, we can you know. You know, I can be the producer anyway, and he can do the nuts and bolts on the ground stuff. So we kind of, you know, we 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 sort of pushed ahead um, uh, with that, um, not really thinking about you know what the end result may or may not be, um, and then having you know sort of got through it. And as I said to you, uh, uh, there was a tranche of money that never came in, which made things even tighter. Which you know, which always pushes the back end of a film because there's always stuff at the back end of a film. You think, well, I can deal with this. We can do this. And if necessary, we shoot an extra day or, or two days and, or, you know, or we'll get a bit more money for post-production, et cetera, et cetera. Well, none of those things happened. We never got any more money. And therefore, we were always struggling to get the film made and finished, you know, in a way that I was um, – uh, comfortable with and and also what happened with that was was that it would have been the help to have got that got a pre-sale deal and, and things like that but we always felt with a story like this you know it was such a moral story and um and 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 also i was always told which is a lesson that i learned even though you've got a low budget film here you will not have a problem to get high profile people to come and be in this film because of the story and you'll get them, forget the money, they won't, it won't even be a problem with money. Well, that ended up being the biggest load of bullshit I have heard in my life <laughs> because that is not true and that doesn't happen. So any filmmakers out there, unless you know somebody personally that you know, does a lot of this kind of work, you're never going to get them because you're never going to get past their agent. So there is no magic bully, as, as was promised to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So therefore, if you haven't got a big star... And all the people that wanted to be involved in it, as soon as we as soon as we announced it after the Melbourne trip, Universal, Fox, you know, Warner, they all see we want the first bite of this film. But as soon as the film is made and there's nobody in it that they can sell, or nobody that they felt they could sell, even though you know there was I thought some some good actors in it, you know, they they quickly uh, disappear. 
So you're then faced with that dilemma, how am I going to sell this? this film you know and uh, and obviously we had lots of meetings and lots of people were in some you know people were interested but then you just work out what the deal is what you're going to get how you're going to get the money back for the investors um, etc um etc and then also from my point of view i hadn't finished a film in the way i wanted there were things about the film that i didn't like so kind of that that sort of bumped along for a, for a year, I kept changing things, and well, I didn't keep changing. I wanted to change things, and um, um, in the end, it got to a stage where, after a period of time, nothing was happening with it, um, and nothing was going to happen with it unless I personally sort of took charge of it. The, the, you know, the real producer's role, which is the side that I had never done before, and and would never do again. I wouldn't do that role again. Uh, I, I think you need people in the know producers that's hearts in the right place for a story like this that get out there you know and use their contacts and get it so i didn't even though we went to a lot of film festivals and you know talked to a lot of people you know it was it was still difficult you know you know you don't know what you don't know and um ultimately what happened was i I re-edited the film. I put some extra scenes in, scenes that people said shouldn't have been in there at the beginning and I listened to and that was wrong. Um, I changed a few things. I redid all of the music. Who did you who who was who did you collaborate on that? Well, originally I used a, a Vietnamese um, uh, um, a guy called John Deng uh, that did the original music. And there is still some of his stuff in there. But I found a couple of young guys who've got, you know, do, do write a lot of music on Spotify. And I, I got a couple of uh, um, two or three songs from them that we worked together with, which I liked. And the, the music was better balanced, um, I felt, plus with these extra scenes. And then, unfortunately, the, the, the company in, um, in Thailand that did the original post-production and grade had closed down their film site. So I had to go back and get all their archived stuff, which took forever, and take it over to another company in, um, in, uh, in, in Thailand who it, it became a struggle. I, I, I can't tell you, every element of, of it was a struggle. And, uh, and because I was working, I had to do all this remotely. Um, you know, it was, and they would send things back that weren't right, and this was missing, and that was missing. So it just took an, an, an age to get it to a stage where we said, "Okay, this is as good as this film's ever going to going to be," uh, given the fact that we don't have any more money to go and reshoot anything. Um, and at that point, we found the company uh, Indie Rights, which we decided to go with, and um, and, and and they sort of started the process of um, selling it and get it on the online. We knew at this stage we probably wouldn't get a theatrical release, even though I always felt it was a film that probably should have had a, a very limited theatrical release, maybe at the Everyman or, you know, those kind of small boutique cinemas. And the only way that was going to happen, and, and I did talk to the people there, but they never really ever came back, was if we took the cinemas ourselves and, and bought them out you know, for three or four weeks and then split whatever it came, we, you know, uh, until we got some kind of traction. But we never did that. And the investors were 
sort of wanting to get some see some money back after a, so so long, such a long period that we ended up putting it on the platforms basically which is where it is today so I'm going to say that's a lovely segue then so so I mean I watched it on Amazon Prime which is the subscription VOD platform but is it is it readily available on on like the other pay for platforms and stuff well funnily enough um, I thought it was on Apple Play and the last problem we had it went out and it went out on amazon prime and then we had a slot to get it on apple play and apple uh, apple's quality control is a little different to amazon and they found that there was a subtitle (coughs) that came up that came up on uh, a a part of the film it was it was on the boat scene actually where the kids where they're putting the kids uh, the families on the boat um that came up on a section where there was actually no dialogue and that and there was two or three other little things so we had to go back in and get that sorted out we missed our slot on apple play and i've been so busy since i can't tell this is the other problem when you're working a lot to get this done and um and funnily enough i checked last night and it is not on apple play yet so i've emailed indie rights this morning actually the first thing i did to see what other platforms it's on because i haven't been able to keep up with that side of it. Um, and again, it, it gets back to not having a good producer or somebody that you can collaborate with that can do that side of it. And it, it, it's invaluable to have something invaluable. The big wide shot of the swapping of the cars. So you've got like the yellow light coming in through the glass, I think it is, at the top of this kind of what looks like a like a, um, your standard... I mean, it looks like your standard kind of industrial kind of unit type empty building, but... It's just a yeah. it's just a lovely frame of of yeah. uh, that you've got there. What was what was the what the decision about showing it that way kind of thing? Oh, I, I don't know. You know, really, um, it, it's exactly what it was. It was an industrial building, um, and um, and there were a couple of windows at the top. And this is again gets back, gets back to the question you asked me about how do you know that this is going to work? That the, the only reasons I put uh, put the lights in those top windows were it looked dark to me. And I thought, well, you know what, I'm just going to and, and, and try and get a bit of light on that window. And it, and, it, and it was completely open at the back of that. So I had to shine something up from the floor just hitting it, which is why only, I think, two or three of the windows were light. And that's another reason why I left the headlights on on the car, if you'll notice. Really, I didn't need to do that. But I just, because it was, you know, doing it on the, I left them on because it was quite dark in there. But in fact, there's more than enough lighting. It's one of those shots because it's, it's, the, the 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 shot itself is quite static, and obviously the the action is the cars moving into frame. It's it's very painterly in a way. Yeah. No, I, I I just it was just you know again it's one of the things you put the camera down. You think how am I going to shoot this? And I just shot it. It just looked a nice frame. Um, I think I've got a bit of closer. There is a closer shot in there where we go in where he puts the bag in the car. There was a little bit more coverage on that, which I didn't use in the end because I didn't think I didn't think that I needed it. Well, look, congratulations on traffic. I'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, to the Prime stuff. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. No, thank you, sir. Pleasure to speak with you again and uh, be interesting to see what response you get. Just when you thought it was safe to switch off the podcast, Larry Smith remembered that he'd not finished talking about the screenwriting aspect. And so I got myself a 10-minute bonus to the main podcast, which you're now going to listen to at the end of this podcast. Enjoy. Uh, Ken Quick, the, the writer, 
um, and, and written it all. And as I said to you, he, you know, educated in, in England. So he writes from a you know, sort of an English perspective. But they use certain terminology that, the, that, that you know, that the, the Singaporeans use. They use um, these terms called manga, which is some kind of drug um uh, scene it's like drug drug pushes or something it, they used to the, the scene auntie a lot you know it's that uh, it's that terminology they use for people they like even if they're not their aunties and there was there was elements of the writing which it didn't play well so i started changing <coughs> a few lines and then in the end i realized i wanted to change a lot more and i obviously had the right because i bought the screen uh, i bought the um, the rights to the, uh, to the script and uh, and eventually, I, I ended up changing quite a lot of it. Um, and when Ken saw the finish, or uh, sort of, yeah, so I guess he saw the finish. I was, he said, "You know, Larry," he said, um, "I don't really want the screenplay title." He said, "I just just give me the credit as writer." So he was a little bit miffed, but he never showed it. But you know, you do have that right as a director to change the screenplay if if you feel that it benefits the film and, and it is so so my title is screenplay even though i did change quite a lot of it um is 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 um just something that he didn't want and he said well you know you've changed most of it you might as well have it now the the the, the link to that is as well i'm just changing another script on another story that i was going to do before trafficker um called the hot and top venus or uh venus noir um, um i'd had a script written which I took given all the basic information. This is the story. This is this, and this is the historical content. And it was never right. So I'm in the process of changing that. I can do that. I'm not a writer. It's very difficult for me to work with a blank piece of paper and write a story. But I'm pretty decent at looking at a story, uh, looking at a story that somebody's written, and changing it for what I think, anyway, is the better. So I would never class myself as a writer, but yes, I could certainly make something into a screenplay. Well, I think, I think every writer on earth will tell you it's a damn sight easier to respond to what's been written than it, than it is to respond to the blank page. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I know that. And that's true of most things in life. You can see something that, for example, I'm looking out in my back garden now that a, a builder did or an architect did and think, Actually, that's nice, but you know what? It needs that, and you just add a bit to it. You need that. You need that inspiration. You need that information. Yeah, yeah I, suppose, I suppose, not not wishing to offend you, I suppose if I walked onto a set that had been lit and it was my responsibility in the end as to how it got lit, I would I could see how it had been lit and go, actually, no more here or less there or whatever, but I wouldn't be able to tell you how to light a set. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. No, exactly. The building blocks of doing that. So, yeah, so that's why I think... Um, you know, like, like I, I'm. You know, I work with John Michael McDonough, as you as you know, and, I'm, and that's the, the film I have to go back and finish. That was shortened, called The Forgiven, with uh, with uh, um, Ray Fiennes and uh, uh, and um, oh, goodness me, Jessica. Um, damn, I'm so bad with names. Jessica Chastain. Um, to name but two, it was a really great cast. Matt Smith, a, a, a great great cast, and with somebody like John who originally was a novelist, um, and he just, I don't know if he, I can't remember if he didn't like writing novels or he found them difficult to get them published. But as a screenwriter, his writing is so succinct, it's unbelievable. There's not a line that isn't wasted. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the top of the screenplay tree, isn't it? If you... Yeah, and honestly, every word 
of every one of his scripts and literally everything he shoots goes into the movie. It's an art. That's an art. No, I think, I think you're right, because I think there's the one thing, while I'm not obviously in, the, in remotely in the same league, the one thing you notice when you when you read a inexperienced screenwriter, right, just someone who's not familiar with the format, not they could have written ten novels. It doesn't it doesn't make them an experienced screenwriter. Is the taking up of real estate on the page, where you go, well, these words are just not going to be filmed, so why are they on the page? Correct, <laughs> correct. And this is the problem I have with writers generally, particularly writers in television. They they write as if the audience have never never written, never read anything in their life, or, or, or have never seen anything that they that they can understand how this plot is working. So everything is overwritten, and what comes with that? That's why I think a lot of British TV is so bad. Is you and and the writers, as you probably know, in television are very powerful. They're more powerful than anyone, and you can't change the line. You can't do anything without. A big discussion with the writer, and 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 when you have to film so much of this self-indulgent writing, and which is what I think it is, you it's it, it it's um, I always think less is more, you know, quality over quantity, and if you if you shorten a lot of these scenes that you have to shoot um, in television, you could take so much more time perfecting. The scenes that are important. I just took one of my own screenplays that I've been working with a director with that was 122 pages long, and it's now 91. Yeah, and exactly. In, and in that process, Larry, I mm. added new stuff. So you imagine how much I took out. Mm. <laughs> because, mm. because you're right, there is, I think in early drafts, there's always a tendency to overwrite because you're kind of, yeah. you're working it out for yourself. So you're almost like going, this is like the idiot draft. So you understand everything because it's all yeah. writ large. And then yeah, you go, yeah. then you go, what do I kind of take out? But the understanding remains. Yes, exactly. Well, it's exactly that. Yes, exactly. And then that's where you get, and I, I think personally, that's the art. You know, I spoke to you about, you asked me about the art of cinematography. That's the art of writing. And also, the other thing that you'll find is when you come to edit something, when our first cut, when we did Trafficker, you know, and we had input from different people in Thailand, producers and things, and all of their input was was wrong. And and also uh, up to a point, you know, from editing, editing editors see a film in, in, in a particular way and, you know, how it flows and what it does. But when you have as much time as we had uh, have had on Trafficker to get the final, final version out, and I'm not sure, and I had a really, my editor, I use a guy called Ollie Stover. He's a great, I don't know any of you, worked on all my films, uh, on, on my commercials and as a young in-house uh, uh, editor. Um, he's still only young, he's still only in his 30s, but he's really good, and I couldn't wish to meet a nicer person to edit with. Um, but when you see what we took out and, uh, uh, of this film and how we shortened scenes that suddenly you realise, actually, I can't reshoot that, and they've said something in there that gives the plot away, it's amazing what you can do with, with, with editing that can also run in parallel with the writing. Well, no, I mean, they say that the, 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 the mantra is that you write a film, you shoot a film, you edit a film, and then you watch a film. So there's four, there's four, there's, there's the there's the screenwriter's view of it. There's the production of it, which gives you gives you a version of it. Then there's the edited version of it, and then there's what the audience gets to see, as in what they tell you they can see. And you can't guess that because 
and you can you can only do as much as you can to influence and manipulate that but they can still a bit like um in a way those questions you're being asked about are you influenced by this are you influenced by that that viewer is watching what you've shot on only god forgives and is seeing what they want to see in a way because of the way they see film. you know it's and that's the fanta- that's the fantastic and scary thing all at once of of when you give when you release stuff to the public is that they're all weird wonderful and variable well i think i think um one thing about the modern era about filmmaking is 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 people's particularly the younger generation which is the demographic isn't it for making money in the cinema i think it's like 18 to 16 to 30 or something i can't remember now it's probably somewhere so yeah and and you know the kind of films that they they all want to watch you know star wars they want to watch the bonds and the, another car turning over another explosion that, that, that you know they can't get enough of that you know sort of stuff i i never watch those films personally uh, i mean I, I i do watch bond but you know they're not the bonds that i grew up with um but i watch films with stories you know, that make you laugh, make you cry, have a, be- have a beginning, a middle and an end, you know, uh, that are well shot, that are well photo, you know, that, 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 that the, the, uh, the images are well constructed, you know, um, the actors act well in them, you know, uh, it, it, it's a package. It's not just about how many people got killed by this guy who never gets a scratch on him, you know. It's about it's storytelling. Films are about storytelling, you know, and the different sort of layers that, that, that you know, the, the impact, that storytelling. And one of the, the most important things, given the fact that the attention span of people today, because they've got so many options, is to be able to tell a story in about 90 minutes, you know, that I hold the attention that's told the story and people have come away with a good feeling. You know, that, that's to me, you can't ask much more for going and spending, I don't know what, you spend £10, £12, whatever you spend, um, and sitting in a nice warm cinema and having a nice experience. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sit. 
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.